<laughs> this is it. It's time for the Where Is It Now Geocaching Podcast, where you can escape the muggles in your life for almost, but not quite, 30 minutes. This podcast is sponsored by the Four State Geocaching Society and was recorded at Digital Planet Studios near Joplin, Missouri. Now let's welcome our host, Where Is It Now? Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Where Is It Now Geocaching Podcast. We have a special guest today, Dr. Francis McCubbin. Let's jump right into it. Francis, you're both a geocacher and a geologist. Let's start by hearing what your geocaching name is. McBolt. Okay, McBolt. Perfect. Well, you know, when I read that you were a geologist, the first thing that went through my mind was, oh, man, earth caches. And it's a challenge for me. I really have a hard time with earth caches. How about you? I bet you love them. I do. Uh, I do like earth caches. Well, I know we just met, but I hope we become really good friends so that you can help me. Okay, I'm lying. I don't want you to help me get better at earth caches. I just want to go with you and you solve them, and then we can send the answers in together. When did you get started geocaching? Uh, I've been caching since uh, November of 2006. Okay, so you're an old timer. And how did you get started? What what was the uh, cause of that? Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Alex Smirnov, we were both graduate students at Stony Brook University, and uh, he had heard about it first, and he actually borrowed my GPS to go try it out when he went home to Slovakia to uh, see his family. And he, when he came back, he uh, told me about it, and he thought I'd really like it. So he took me out geocaching, and, uh, and he was right. I got hooked right away. I got you. So in 2006, that's before I started, were you still having to download things off the internet into a GPS receiver or was there an app at that time? Uh, we used to put GPX files onto the uh, old Garmin unit, um, but it was usually easier to just print out cache pages and take them with you to the field. Things have changed a lot. Do you still use a, a GPS or do you use a phone? I mostly use the phone now. Um, you know, if I'm going off the grid, I'll make sure to always have a GPS just to, as a backup. But uh, I haven't really needed it in quite some time. Yeah, same here. I don't really use my GPS much anymore. You got started in 2006 and you got addicted. At the time, what part of the country were you in? Uh, so at that time, I was in Long Island, uh, New York. Were there a lot of caches available? Uh, there were a decent amount, uh, not, not a ton. I mean, we used to basically just go on the weekend and, and plan to go to a park and clear out the 20 caches that were there. And, you know, back then you could, uh, within a few months, you know, have nothing but found caches when you open the map. <laughs> it's a lot harder to do that these days. Do you ever get back to, uh, to your old stomping grounds? Uh, I've not been back there for at least five or six years. Are you a member of the Long Island Geocachers group on Facebook? Uh, I was, I think I was a member of LIGO a long time ago. I don't know if, uh, if I'm still uh, in that group or not. I don't think I am on Facebook. Well, I recently joined just because I join everything so I can hear about geocaching around the country. And that just kind of stuck in my memory when you said that. So anyway, you got started early, you started geocaching. Were you in college yet when you did that? 
Were, in other words, were you a geologist yet? I, I had a bachelor's degree in geology when I got started. I was working towards the PhD at uh, Stony Brook University. I asked you before we started what to call you because you do have a lot of titles. I mean, we could talk about geocacher, geologist, scientist, and doctor, of course, and without even getting into the title that really describes the job that you do now. Why don't you tell us who your current employer is? Uh, now I work for NASA at uh, the Johnson Space Center. You now work at NASA, which is the reason that you're famous as a geocacher. I know the listeners are going to know exactly who you are as soon as you talk about this next piece of the story. Why don't you tell us about your most recent project? Sure. So, um, the uh, Perseverance rover that's currently on Mars, uh, that started off as what we were calling the Mars 2020 rover. And it's got a bunch of instruments. Um, and one of those instruments is the Sherlock instrument. And this is a, uh, a Raman UV spectrometer. And in order to uh, calibrate that instrument, we needed to have a calibration target. And Johnson Space Center was asked to build that calibration target. And uh, one of the scientists on that mission, Mark Fries, uh, Dr. Mark Fries, um, he and his son had the idea of, hey, how about we put a geocache on this thing, kind of like there was a geocache on the International Space Station. And um, they thought it'd be a really good way to engage the public in the science going on in that mission. And so uh, they, they pitched that to the mission management and, and they liked the idea, um, but they needed someone who could kind of make that happen and really uh, speak the language of geocaching. And that's when they've asked me to get involved in the project. And so uh, I believe I started on that project in 2016. Um, there, there wasn't a whole lot of planning as far as uh, how to do it. So I was sort of tasked with that. I first reached out uh, to Matt Dawson, who runs the uh, EarthCache um, program at GSA. And he put me in contact with the folks at Geocaching HQ. And we discussed how best to incorporate an element of geocaching into this project. And um, it was pretty clear from the beginning that a trackable would be the best way to do it. And that is the path uh, that we took. And so we ended up putting a trackable on one of the targets in that calibration target. And that is uh, what people have been seeing. And I think it's got over 77,000 logs at this point since its, uh, its picture has been taken on the surface of Mars. Yeah, the day I set up to uh, make notes to talk with you, they there were 77,161. Are you one of those people? Have you logged it? Uh, yeah, I, I did log it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I got to tell you, I was really excited by this whole thing. I really enjoy that NASA and geocaching got together and decided to do this. Now, how about you? Are you still excited about it? Oh, incredibly. And I think one of the most rewarding things was to kind of read back through all the logs and I shared that information with the whole Sherlock team. And they were just really inspired by all of the positive comments that people had from all around the world um, and how excited they were about this project. It it was uh, successful beyond what we could have ever hoped for. Yeah, I think so too. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody was Uh, asking other people how to log it, how to find it. Uh, Congratulations. You mentioned Smirnoff, and I don't know his first name, but 
Uh, was he involved on this project as well? Uh, no, he wasn't involved in this project, um, but he certainly knew about it. <laughs> We're good buddies. And we just live a couple miles apart from each other. Interesting. I did look at your profile and I noticed that you guys had gotten some geocaches together several times. I know you may not know the answer to this, but are there a lot of uh, people at NASA that are geocachers? I don't know about a lot, but I've definitely seen a bunch around. I, I see trackables on some of the cars in the parking lot. And I've, I've been, uh, a few people have reached out to me from other NASA centers to uh, talk about, talk about the uh, trackable. So I know that they're, you know, they're out there. I would think that this event would cause a lot of people to be drawn to you to talk about the subject. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've, uh, had a lot of messages from from various folks most of them just saying thank you and uh that they're really excited i did learn about a few of my colleagues that were geocachers that i hadn't known uh that they were geocachers prior well yeah that makes sense let's move this conversation to a totally different area when i was a kid i always wanted to be a cowboy or an astronaut those were the my two go-to's as a five and six year old what about you what did you want to be when you were that age I think I wanted to be um, a scientist uh, or someone who goes around the world saving animals. <laughs> Those were my uh, two go-tos at that age. That's excellent. So have you saved any animals? Uh, not directly. <laughs> okay. But you did become a scientist. I did, yeah. Absolutely. I asked that because one of the questions I had in mind for you was if you ever imagined when you were in school, this connection that you have to Mars, the planet. No, in fact, I'd say even through uh, undergraduate, you know, learning to be a geologist, I didn't know that I'd have a connection to Mars. It wasn't until graduate school that that really became uh, became something for me. What's well, a big deal? I mean, so... You know, there are some fields that are narrower than others, right? And so if you wanted to be a veterinarian, there are, I don't know how many there are, but there's a lot, right? There's a lot in every town. But your actual job at NASA, how many of those jobs are there? Uh, as far as, so, so my, uh, my day job at NASA is the, the uh, curator, the astromaterials curator. And uh, there are less than 10 of us. Uh, okay, that's what I thought. I had that down, Astro Materials Curator. Yeah, I, you know, that's a, that's a really narrow field of people. So you didn't just like become a geologist. You became a geologist and a scientist that got one of the 10 jobs available on planet Earth and Mars. So why don't you walk us through what it's like where you work? Yeah, so work at the Johnson Space Center where we house all of NASA's astromaterials. And so these are things brought back from space, uh, geological materials brought back from space. Um, this includes things like the Apollo samples. Uh, we've got meteorites collected from Antarctica that come from all over the uh, solar system. And those we, we sort of uh, share jointly with the Smithsonian in uh, DC. We've got um, uh, our Stardust collection, which are little pieces of the tail of Comet Vild 2. We've got 
uh, solar wind implanted into various materials as part of our Genesis mission. We also have cosmic dust particles, which sort of rain from the cosmos and we catch them on collectors uh, in the stratosphere as they're falling. And uh, we're getting ready to, to get some new samples from the asteroid Bennu with the OSIRIS-REx mission. You know, caring for these materials, allocating them and, and studying them is just an amazing, an amazing job. In the morning you go to unlock uh, these labs, particularly the Apollo lab. It's this large clean room suite um, where you've got combination locks on, on all the various rooms and, and going into there, it's just, you know, you can hear all the wind blowing from the clean rooms. Uh, and, but it's also very peaceful and serene and it's, uh, you, you feel the history of that place. I, I think one of mankind's greatest accomplishments, uh, was landing humans on the moon. Um, and, and you feel that history every time you're walking through, uh, the Apollo lab. That sounds exciting. I'm just going to, I like to assume things and it gets me in trouble, but I'm going to assume that if I was touring the Johnson Space Center in Houston, that this clean room, the Apollo clean room might not be on my list of places to see. Uh, it is not on the regular tour schedule now. <laughs> I can see why not. Well, that's very interesting. And you said on, 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 on the HQ podcast that you still get that same thrill, that same bit of excitement every time you unlock. Is that still true? Yeah, that's still true. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to explain in words how you just feel the history um, when, when you're in there. Well, one thing that's really fun, since we have meteorites from Mars, you know, you can hold a piece of the moon in one hand and a piece of Mars in the other. And that, that's also just a really fun thing to do. No kidding. I, you know, I got to imagine that when people call you and say, so what'd you do today? That's a lot different than when they call the average person. Oh, nothing. I was just holding Mars in one hand and the moon in the other when you called. Well, I won't lie. I am not a geologist and yet I'm jealous. I mean, I want to hold Mars and the moon in my hands. Well, that's exciting stuff. So I was, I just imagined that when you told me what you wanted to be as a kid, I didn't see scientists coming. And so I was going to tie, like, how did you get from there to here? But you just had kind of a one, well, two track mind for a minute and then a one track mind. So you made it happen. Is there anything in the future that you'd like to be or become or move into? I think I'm always looking to the future for various opportunities. Um, I like to, you know, scientifically, I like to study different things. So I've been I'm always trying to evolve, you know, what I'm studying as a scientist. Um, as far as uh, curation goes, the next decade and, and possibly beyond is going to be very busy as far as uh, new sample return missions and things coming in. Um, you know, if, if things go as planned, we might be even getting our first uh, returned samples from Mars in the early 2030s. And, you know, the planning for that is a lot of work. And so I, I see a lot of work ahead as far as getting ready for new sample return missions. And, uh, and science is always continually evolving. You're basically surfing that cutting edge of, of human knowledge and, and helping to define it uh, as a scientist. And that's just something I find immensely enjoyable. What if everything was different and you could actually physically go to a planet as a geologist? Would you go? If it took three years to get there and three years to get back to a planet you wanted to study, would you consider that? 
personally, that probably wouldn't be for me. I think it'd be very exciting, but um, yeah, I think I think I'd miss my family too much, honestly. <laughs> totally makes sense. That is a long trip. So back to the trackable that's on the rover. How hard was that to get approved by GroundSpeak? By uh, yeah, Geocaching HQ was um, enthusiastic from the start. There was there was uh, no hesitation with with uh, with making that happen. So I, w- I would say it it really just took you know going there, meeting them, having a discussion, and you know the details got worked out as we went. It was a, a seamless, very enjoyable experience. And how hard was it to get approved through NASA? So I think a lot of that happened before I was brought onto the project. Um, but I think the you know geocaching had been used as an outreach uh, tool in the space sciences before, particularly with the International Space Station. Uh, I, th- I believe trackables, I think more than one trackable have gone up on the ISS. And there's, of course, the geocache on the uh, ISS. You know, the, I think the NASA managers were already kind of aware they didn't need ha- to have geocaching explained or its impact in, in engaging the public uh, in science. And so I don't think it was, it was uh, that hard. And we, you know, we already, you know, we really optimized each of those targets and the calibration target to serve a lot of purposes. And so we weren't really adding mass to the Cal target in order to do this because we, we were going to have a polycarbonate disc anyway as one of the calibrants. And that disc, which, which is where the uh, trackable is on, is actually a piece of uh, astronaut uh, visor helmet material. Um, and, and it's made of that material so that we can actually see how these astronaut materials perform on the surface of Mars over time, which will help inform, you know, future human exploration efforts. Uh, it serves as a calibrant for the Watson imager and uh, the Sherlock uh, spectrometers. It was optim- highly optimized and just a sort of bonus EPO uh, thing that I think NASA found very compelling. Wow, this is just all so interesting. I love this. But I somehow keep getting myself away from the topic of geocaching. So let's go back to geocaching as it pertains to you. I did look, and you have 26 hides. I did look at some of your stats. You have 26 hides. And only two of those, wait, is that right? How many are, how many are earth caches? Two of them. Yeah, only two of them are earth caches. What's up? So I think when Earth caches first, or at least when I first started looking into them in the uh, mid-2000s, there was a lot of um, permissions and everything needed that you had to document before you could set one up. And that just kind of uh, did not motivate me to set up a lot of Earth caches. I looked into it more recently, and I saw that it's actually a lot easier. And uh, I guess since then, I've, I've lived in a, in a place that doesn't have a lot of uh, rocks. It's got, you know water, soil, and sedimentary stuff. And so I have set up one earth cache um, in, a, in a ripple field near Galveston, in Galveston. Well, I'm glad to hear you're back at it. And you have shared with me that you really enjoy uh, earth caches. I always say I don't love them, but the truth is I'm just not very good at them. So what should I do to get better at earth caches? So I think um, at least a lot of the earth caches that I see you know, some of them are almost like virtual caches where you just have to read the sign 
and you know and and look around and, and those earth caches are okay i enjoy those the way that i enjoy virtual caches and then i think there are the other earth caches where you actually have to measure something and do something sort of something that's in the spirit of what a, what an earth cache should be and those come in sort of two flavors uh incredibly complicated and not too complicated <laughs> and and i like the ones that are not too complicated because I like to geocache with my uh, with my five year old daughter, and um, if I can't explain what we're supposed to do to her, I feel like it's probably too complicated. They're all super complicated to me. Now, one of my problems is I very much have OCD, and when somebody says estimate the distance between like a couple of different types of rock, I don't like estimating. I want to measure it. So, like, I'm trying to. I'm becoming scientist Mike trying to get the, you know, I'm afraid I'll fail. Huh. That's funny. I have, a I have a different approach. So when I'm doing my science, I'm very uh, exact, very, you know, OCD, if you will. But when I'm doing earth caches, I go with the good enough method. And, uh, and it's, you know, I, I measure stuff with, with my hands and, uh, and I eyeball everything. Because honestly, you know, you only, you only want to, determine things to the uncertainty that's required to answer the question. And for earth caches, I don't think that, I think that uncertainty window is really large. Okay, everybody, you heard it here first. If you placed an earth cache and I claim it, just know that Dr. Francis says close enough is good enough. I like it. I like it. I noticed that on your geocaches that your friend Smirnoff is your top finder. Does he go with you when you hide him or does he come later? He does not. He comes later. What a guy. Well, my caching friends go with me and they sign the log. They don't ever claim a first to find, but they wait for it to post, wait for somebody to get the first to find, then they log it because they're too lazy to get out there and, and go find it on their own. Okay, that's not fair. I admit it. What they actually said, the actual words are, I already found it once. I don't need to come find it again. Anyway, let's move on. When NASA was talking with Groundspeak about placing the trackable on, on Mars, was there any discussion to possibly do this as a virtual cache or anything other than a trackable? Uh, we did talk about it. There are a lot of complicating factors there. Uh, I don't want to speak for, uh, for geocaching HQ, but you know, Mars has its own coordinate system, right? In fact, you can go to when you go to Google Earth, you can turn on Mars mode and then you can travel all around Mars on, on Google Mars and and all the features there have their own coordinate system, just like we have on Earth. And so, you know, that's that's one complicating thing. How do you, you know, put the coordinates for that cache? I know the one on ISS is somewhere, I think, in Kazakhstan with lots of warnings. Don't come here. The cache isn't here. So that would be one thing. And the other one, you know, geocaching really is about, you know, going somewhere and finding something or, or doing something. And as much as there's a lot of promise in the future of getting to Mars, getting humans to Mars, you know, in the next few, within the next few decades, um, you know, having a cache there, it, it, you know, it's sort of an armchair find. Um, and, and that's, you know, just something that's kind of frowned upon in geocaching. Now, I think personally, this is just, you know, me, Francis talking, 
if you if you turn that into an educational experience, there's going to be something there could be something more redeeming about it. But, you know, is that geocaching? I think if you asked the entire geocaching community, you'd get really divided answers on that. Well, I love your answer. I think the the perfect answer you gave is that would be sort of an armchair find. And in the spirit of geocaching, it's to take you to places. And while I could, while it could have been a cam cache or a virtual cache, I mean, I, I don't fault the way it turned out. I just wondered if there had been some discussion on it. After we get off, like, when are you going caching again? How often do you go? So I usually get to go geocaching uh, when I'm on vacation. Uh, I found a lot of the caches kind of close to home. When I, uh, when I was doing my 365 plus day streak, that kind of gobbled up everything in a five to 10 mile radius. So uh, usually it's when I go on vacation and I usually try to target things like old caches. Uh, you know, for example, uh, I just got back from a vacation two weeks ago or uh, last, you know, last week. Um, and on the way back, we did the oldest cache in Delaware, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, as we drove from from Maryland to Texas. And so that's that's a lot of fun. And then kind of picking up other caches of opportunity along the way while targeting certain specific ones like that. So that's sort of how I geocache. It's always tied to traveling. Your family, do they like to geocache? Um, trying to trying to get my uh, daughter interested. Um, and she likes it. She likes the swag in a lot of the caches. She she prefers when the caches are in the woods because that means there's something in them, versus the uh, you know right. the light post caches, which we try to. She doesn't like those, but in general, you know, my family likes like walking in the woods and hiking, but they're not avid geocachers. So, yeah, my my wife, she definitely appreciates the places that geocaching takes us sometimes that we wouldn't otherwise know about. I'll give an example. We were we were visiting Pittsburgh, um, and uh, and we both watched Mister Rogers growing up, but we we hadn't uh, appreciated that he was in Pittsburgh. And one of the virtual caches there takes you to this little monument dedicated to Mister Rogers, and we both really enjoyed looking at that and checking it out. And uh, we honestly wouldn't have known it was there without geocaching. Absolutely, the thing I hear over and over again is that geocaching takes us places we would have never seen if we hadn't have gone to get a cache. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for coming on the program. It was a pleasure having you today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. That was Dr. Francis McCubbin. He's with NASA and works at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And as you heard, he was responsible for getting a GC trackable on the Mars rover. How exciting. All right, guys, I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Where Is It Now Geocaching podcast. Please subscribe, rate us five stars in your reviews, and tell your friends about the podcast. Now, be good lads and lassies and go and find a geocache.